Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following episode of Killer Genes contains graphic and sensitive information and material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Killer Genes Stripped Down, where we talk about everything true crime and then some. You'll hear about the cases that are close to us and go behind the scenes of true crime reporting. We'll also talk about case updates and breaking news, as well as speak with some of our friends and colleagues in the world of true crime. Now, we're going to be sharing things we've never been able to talk about because certainly inappropriate to post online, but this is the platform that we can finally share it, what really happens when gathering true crime stories. So let's get to it. Joining us now on a special episode of Strip Down is a good friend who I've known for a long time, Deputy Chief Blake Chow. And uh, he's been with the LAPD for 30 years. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Does it feel like 30 years? <laughs> no, it feels like two weeks. It has gone by so fast. And I think I'm blessed because I just, I really enjoy what I do. So when we met, wait, I just, we have to tell everyone, Kelly's going to sound a little funky. She's been um, <laughs> struck down by a child with uh, influenza. <laughs> I have. Yep. Sorry, everybody. My usual voice is not here today. So uh, it's still me, just so everybody knows. So Chief Chow, thank you so much for joining us. It's just too thank good. You. It's too good. You actually sound like a little girl when you're sick, which is odd. It's okay. <laughs> the levels go so high. Mine goes uh, deeper man voice. <laughs> um <clears throat> Well, so um, Blake and I met, I was a CBS correspondent here for SoCal, and I'm pretty sure when we met, you were working the bomb squad, right? I was, uh, yes, I was in our counterterrorism special operations bureau, which included our bomb squad and uh, our major crimes division, which is kind of our anti-terrorist piece, as well as um, SWAT and K9 and all that cool stuff. One of the things I'd like to know, if that's okay, is really what sparked your interest in going into the field of law enforcement? You know, everybody has said always as a kid, I wanted to be a fireman or want to be a police officer. You know, was this always your, your goal in life and, and why that passion? You know what, what it was? I remember being around 16 and all of a sudden having an interest in it. You know, I, I would do reading on it. I did a couple of rides. I lived up in the Bay Area at the time. And um, I did some ride-alongs with the Santa Clara County Sheriff. And then I graduated from high school, and my parents didn't want me to go into law enforcement because they had started watching cops, and they figured I would be in super suits every night and in fights and things like that. So they said, "You're not, you're not going to major in, you're not going to major in criminal justice and be a cop. You can." Uh, so I decided, okay, well, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I. I did what I think they wanted me to do. I majored in business. I graduated, and my first job, I was an internal auditor at a defense contractor. It was a year and a half that felt like 10 years. And um, I moved back up to the Bay Area, and I became, I was a staff accountant for a medical manufacturing firm. Same thing. I, I didn't get much satisfaction out of those jobs, but I still had that interest that was kind of, you know, parked in the back of my mind. So I joined the San Jose Police Reserves and I started doing that 
and enjoying that more than what I was getting paid for. So that to me being, you know, 20 something is a clue that might be a good time to make a career change. What were your first impressions when joining the LAPD and how was it then versus now? It was definitely an eye opener. I had never, I wasn't from Los Angeles. You know, I, of course I'd seen the movie colors and I figured that's kind of how LA was like. Little did I know that it was very, I made it through the Academy and got out in the street. LA was in the early nineties, which was a much more violent place to work than, than it is right now. I think, you know, back in the mid, mid to late nineties, our homicide, you know, Sanders were up in, probably at least north of a thousand per year. And, you know, now, now we're probably down on the, you know, the 300 or so. But the biggest thing for me, I think is that, you know, we didn't, our relationship with the community back in the early nineties, very, very strained. And, you know, of course I didn't know that when I was going to the Academy because that's not something you pick up until you hit the field. But our training back then was a lot of tactics, and things like that that didn't really have anything well designed to keep us safe obviously because 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 of the violence but we didn't have a lot of uh training that would really give us a way to connect with the community which is i think what we're really good at right now and why were the was it because of gang domination back in the 90s that you guys have worked so hard to not weed out, but just really target better? Or what was the reason for the murder rates being so high then versus now? I think it was a couple of things. Crack cocaine had kind of made its introduction into society probably like the early to mid-80s. And that was really a vehicle to get drugs on the street. And a lot of the gangs found it was very lucrative to go into the, uh, into the crack cocaine business. And so you had a lot of turf wars going on over geography as well as business. The you know the gangs at that time because of that you know a lot of money came in, they became stronger, they had more firepower, and there was just a lot of shootings and turf war things going on that we saw throughout the city. I worked Rampart Division as a training officer in the in the mid nineties, and um, we had an eight little square miles back then we had 150 homicides one year and I remember coming in and there was just two or three shootings a night you know and I I don't even know how the homicide teams kept up with that pace but a lot of the shootings back then were done with assault weapons AK-47s between certain gangs but I think it was a lot of it was um, kind of new and I think that you know the, uh, the, the, the introduction of crack cocaine certainly played a huge role in that you know, recently, actually, I went on a ride along for something I wanted to do to do with the LAPD. And I just remember it was just me and one other officer, no other cars. And we were driving through South LA and we just see a sea of red. And he said, oh, let's go check that out. And I said, no, 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 let, let's not do that. And he's like, we'll be fine. They're, you know, they're not going to mm-hmm. shoot us. We'll be fine. And I just was like, oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. We went through this sea of red, which, you know, I'm indicating, I don't know if there were bloods or what, but it, I, they were a gang and they were mourning the murder 
of one of their own and they're memorializing in this street area. And we were just slowly driving through like I'd say 200 people all in red, just staring at us. And I thought this can go one of two ways. I was terrified. And I just, I want to ask you questions that people normally don't get to ask. Are you ever scared? And and what do you do? You know, in my, my experience, it's strange, you know, when I don't, when I'm working or when I was working the streets, I, I don't, I was, I was never scared. You know, I mean, I always felt like I had a partner that was trained as well as I was. We have radios, you know, we could, we could request a backup or help if something happened. And I always felt that my training would keep me safe. So I was never scared, but I remember being in some significant tactical situations where you just kind of, your mind goes into this, this police mode and we, we use our training. We know exactly, all the officers know exactly what they need to do. Other officers show up, they're in the same boat and we get the job done. And then sometimes when it's over, you sit back and you take a breath and you'll, what the heck did I just do? You know, I came across yesterday. I mean, even to this day, even though I don't work the field, I came across a traffic accident in downtown Los Angeles and this 25 year old woman was riding one of the scooters and a car hit her and launched her over the parked cars and she landed on the sidewalk probably flew well, probably a good 15, 20 feet and it was a stolen car. So the guy that was driving it took off, but there was no ambulance there yet. There was no police car yet. There's just me. They, I got flagged down and they said, hurry, hurry. She's not, she's not breathing or she's, she's having trouble breathing. And I remember I just, I got out of the car and I just calmly went over there. She was sitting up against the wall. She, she was bleeding so much. The blood was, was pooling in the sidewalk and was running off into the street. Her jaw was broken. Clearly she had a hole inside of her cheek. And, you know, I did, I did what I'm trained to do. I requested an ambulance or requested additional units. I gave kind of a little synopsis to our RTO about what her, that she was breathing and she was conscious, but you could tell that she was, um, she could go into shock. And all I, all I did was I knelt down beside her and I put my hand on her knee and I told her, I'm not going anywhere. I requested an ambulance and you're going to be okay. And I told her that over and over and over. And every time I said, you're going to be okay, she nodded her head. And, um, you know, I sometimes think that possibly, you know, being able to do that with her maybe kept her from going into shock or, kept her breathing because clearly the people that flagged me down said she was having trouble breathing. And then she was transported and I found out later on, although she has significant injuries, she was in stable condition. You know, so your training kind of just kicks in and you do what you have to do. And I went back to the office and I go, man, that was, that was a, that was an experience. Speaking of that, Chief Chow, with law enforcement's relationship with the community seems to have taken a shift over the last few years. And you being such a veteran of the force, and especially in Los Angeles, how have you personally seen that shift, and what do you make of it? Well, when I first came on, and I was a young police officer, we didn't have a relationship with the community. I remember being trained that, and you have to remember, too, you have to put it in context. Back in the 80s and the late 70s, there were a lot of attacks on police officers. People were planting bombs on police cars. 
you know, I remember we were probably losing at least an officer a year or two to violence somehow. And it was just kind of a known fact. And, you know, we were coming in, we were being introduced to a world of, you know, significant amount of shootings every night and gangs and things like that. So it was a lot of violence. So we were trained to not really trust anybody. You know, we had to do our job, but you don't let suspects, victims, witnesses, I don't care who they are, nobody approaches you. And then some of the response to the to those violent times was a lot of task forces that went into neighborhoods that really kind of was almost like an occupying force and, you know, high on arrests and things like that. You've probably heard of some of the task forces that were going on back in the early 90s or the late 80s. And so what happened was we didn't really have, although we had a, a there were there were there were individual officers, senior lead officers, and, and things like that that had good relationships with community members. As a whole, the organization's culture didn't have a way to create a good relationship with the community, and so you can't create public safety in an environment like that. You can't go into neighborhoods and become occupying forces and stop everybody because you know you stop people that live in the neighborhood and. You can't arrest everybody. You can't arrest your way out of a narcotics problem. You can't arrest your way out of anything. It requires this, you know, work with this community. So I think probably the watershed moment for us was obviously the uh, 1992 riot. And if you look back at the riots, a lot of people will say, well, there were the Rodney King riots. No, there, yeah, that, that may have been the the fuse that lit the powder cake, but the powder cake had been being packed with, uh, with gunpowder for quite a, or for, with explosives for quite a, many, many, many years. And 92 was just something just set it off. And that's what, that's what we had. So ever since over the last 20, you know, eight years or so, LAPD has really been working very hard and kind of in the forefront of actually building some meaningful relationships with the community And I think that's what you're seeing right now. You know, it's so interesting because, first of all, I had no idea it was that violent and that dangerous for officers at that time. And it's it's scary listening to it. But I did see as a, um, you know, field reporter of many, many years that there was a shift in, you know, crime rates lowered and the relationships got better, especially within the community. But then recently I see it shifted again nationwide and I wonder, would it be because of the targeted police shootings? Would it be because of all the cameras and the, you know, community kind of uh, turning the eye and, you know, self-policing and trying to expose, you know, cops in the way they handle things? Because, you know, it's a little frustrating being a crime reporter is, you know, I'm obviously friends with a lot of officers and um, I think everyone knows at this point, my brother is a uh, former criminal. It was in a gang. I mean, he was just shot a few weeks ago. And so, you know, I, I see I'm in that weird world where I kind of see the criminals and I see the officers and I have perspectives from, from both. And I, what's frustrating is I see people posting videos like, you know, exchanges with officers 
on an incident where they're provoking them and it's like they're trying to get like look at the way he's treating me and what he just said to me and it's like you you're at a homicide and you're videotaping an officer's you know words and behaviors because he's clearly outnumbered and it, it's very frustrated that the narrative it's not fair and and I do understand there are these huge incidents that are really important to talk about. But what is the reason for the current shift where it's kind of going back to the 90s that you described? Well, I think, you know, you know, first of all, from a police officer's perspective, I mean, the, the, the individual that hates a bad cop the most is a good cop because uh, they it takes one person to tarnish many, many years of work that are done by a lot of people. The change we have seen spike in violent crime in Los Angeles probably in the last year or so. And it's really, it's really kind of hard to describe what it is. We're not anywhere close to where we were in the 90s as far as statistically-wise. Because I think in 97, I think we we're maybe up around 1,200 homicides. And if you had the county in there, as well as to the, you know, in the thousands. And we're not anywhere close to that. But, you know, when I see what you're describing, Melissa, I think there's like many, many factors that are, that are impacting that. And it's not just, it's not just a one thing that I think has impacted this. I think it's, I think social media has played a very, very big role, not only in some of the things that you described, but if you look at, you know, some of the division that's going on, for example, with, you know, Asian hate crime and, you know, Asians being blamed for uh, COVID, you know, when COVID hit, came over and started you know, spreading throughout the United States, or you look at other political things that have happened in the last year, Social media has become a vehicle, I think, that spreads messages very much, much more quickly than what would happen in the 1990s. And I think there's also, because of social media and because you can post things on, you see a lot more stories of people confronting officers that are posted and, and other people watch it. And it does happen quite a bit. It makes officers' jobs very tough. And I also think possibly. There's, um, you know, if you look at the homeless issues that we're having, that also leads to violent crime. As a society, you know, we we've we we've failed our 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 people that are that have mental or um or you know a mental health crisis that are in the street. Or if you look at addiction, people that are living in the street that are addicted to either substance, different substances or alcohol, we've failed them in being able to provide them with a safe place and that could actually provide a recovery environment. And so there's many, many things I think that have happened, you know, in the last several years that have created possibly this environment that we're in right now. Ghost guns have become a huge problem. I would say that probably, well, probably half the guns that I see confiscated are ghost guns that are, are these kits that you can buy in other states that are not put together. They don't have serial numbers. They're legal to sell in those states. But you can come back to California, you can put it together, and you have a gun in a few minutes. Oh, um, it's it's a real gun? Ghost guns? They're real? real. Gun, yeah. They, 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 they sell them as kits. And so they're not technically firearms, but you can bring them, you can buy them in different states. Which states, you know, it's the, the, the states that sell them is, is, uh, is escaping me right now. But, you know, there's some that are close to California. And um, you can bring them home. You can put them together and you have a full functioning firearm, you know, probably in like 30 minutes. But they're illegal. 
here here illegal. They don't have serial numbers. So, you know, we have we have Westfield's got a ATF task force where we are pulling those ghost guns off the street and just record numbers. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And if you haven't heard of or tried BetterHelp yet, you really should give it a shot. You know, Kelly, the public's perception of mental health has really changed over the years. And thankfully, I think we're all beginning to understand that our mental health is just as important as our physical health. Yeah. And, you know, I go to the doctors every year for a physical. You know, I get the oil changed in my car regularly. I do the deep spring cleaning and I go to the dentist, even though I hate it. So we really need to treat our mental health as being just of an important regular maintenance routine as anything else in our daily lives. Yeah, it's important to stay centered and balanced, you know. And what makes BetterHelp so easy is that it's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And you know what? It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So why invest in everything else and not on your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Killer Jeans. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Killer Jeans. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Killer Jeans. I wanted to go back to the roles that police officers probably didn't realize they would have to, you know, wear these titles, but you know, you don't, there's a lot of calls coming in from homeless individuals, mentally ill individuals or addicts living on the street that turn violent, right? Uh, there's a spike, especially in certain areas like Venice beach. Um, how, and yeah. you know, yeah, you want to address the attack and the violence portion of it, but there's a very real thing about a mentally ill person how do you, do you find that you now have to have training to be in a sense like a social worker uh, to identify an illness and to approach in a different way? And how, how dominant is that issue, those calls of violence where it's mentally, uh, mental illness is related? Oh, it's, it's significant. Um, we've had, um, you know, like I said, the the, the treatment options for people that, you know, for example, that maybe don't have health insurance is really uh, almost, it's, it's, it's not very effective. And so they end up on the street, but you're right. The officer's job probably starting in the mid nineties has evolved into not just something of an individual that's there to enforce the laws. They have to be, social workers, they have to be mental health crisis negotiators, they have to be, you know, marriage counselors, they have to be, uh, you know, juvenile counselors. I mean, you name it, that's, if you do a ride along and you have all the radio calls, you realize they do all the jobs in a single night, depending upon who they come in contact with. So the training's there, but, you know, I think what's happened in the past is because of some of the things that I described earlier, you know, the police officers are really the only person that is in the street 24-7. And a lot of these functions that are probably better suited, you know, for counselors and things, addiction counselors, mental health crisis counselors, 
are probably are probably more better equipped to handle it are pushed off on police officers. And sometimes we're not the best people to be placed in that situation. Certainly, if if there's if violence is or a crime is occurring, yes, that 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 is our that's our wheelhouse. But some of the routine things that the police officers have to handle really should be in a perfect world better served by somebody that is uh, you know, a counselor or something like that. Maybe like a, a crisis unit, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, is there an answer? Are, are cities discussing it? Is it a different task force? How do you even, well, can you, how do you wrap your hands around it? Well, there are some, you know, the city of LA and LAPD has got a, a program uh, going that is, is doing just that. But some of the routine calls that are coming in involving people with mental health crisis, uh, not involving a crime or, or violence, will actually go to a uh, a, uh, a counselor. And because, as I said before, that is a they're they're better equipped to handle that. Sometimes people in mental distress, um, and they maybe like a situation where a counselor would be better. Sometimes you could come in a uniform. It, it makes the crisis worse, you know, and it amps it up. And then, you know, you might, you know, maybe you end up having use of force. So there are programs that are kind of just getting off the ground that um, are designed kind of under that model. Because I think people are realizing, yeah, you know, police officers, you know, we, we have a lot of work to do out there. And sometimes it's not best for to tie up a police officer on, on some of these non-violent calls that could be handled with a counselor and probably have a better outcome in the end. Chief Chow, I want to ask I, you, you know, you told a, a great story um, with the woman in the scooter and over your 30 years, I mean, you've, you've been through, you've been through it all. Is there any particular incident or call that has stood out to you the most for whatever reason that is, you know, one that, one that's never left you in all these years? You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's very similar to the one I just, I just spoke of because the calls where I felt like I actually saved somebody's life were the ones that really stand out to me. It's not the, you know, I, I, you know, of course I remember some of the tactical things that I got involved with, but it's really the ones where I was able to save somebody's life. And there was, the, the, when I was, uh, in 19, probably the mid nineties, I was working Rampart and I remember getting a welfare check and that's usually because somebody elderly lives in a house nobody's heard from them in a while <clears throat> and um my partner and i go to this call and we end up we, we go in and it's the middle of summer and there's this elderly woman has like just probably 10 fans going because she didn't have air conditioning and we're calling her name and she lives like a two-story house and I was really fully expecting to go up there and find her deceased because that's usually how those things end up. But I remember I went up there to the bathroom and she had slipped off the toilet and her head was stuck between the bathtub and the toilet. And I thought she was, I thought she'd passed away. So I bent down and, you know, I put my hand on her and she took a breath. And um, I told partner she's still alive. So we got an ambulance and uh, transported her. And I went back to the station. I remember the lieutenant at the time, he, he told me, Blake, you know, you, he, not a lot of people can actually point to a, a day and time that they saved somebody's life, but you guys can. And those are the things 
that always really stick out in my mind when I think back to some of the some of the things that I've been involved in. You know what? I was just thinking it's the day to day little amazing moments like that story that people don't really realize, you know, I mean, people pay attention to officers when they shoot and kill someone and they want to debate if it was justified or not. And it's great that that system is set up, right. And to see um, if something can be done differently, but it's the day to day that I think about, especially as a crime reporter that I see those little moments that it's hundreds and hundreds of moments Every second of every day, both good and bad, that people just don't even think about. Yeah, I, I can't even tell you. Like after I was driving back to this to my office after the scooter incident, I, I, I felt so good. I mean, I felt like you get this feeling when you're able to help somebody in distress like that that is you, you can't get by by just doing your um, you know a routine task. I mean, it's just it's really kind of it's hard to describe. It's just this joy of maybe saving somebody's life that just can't really be put into words. What would you say is the narrative not being told within the LAPD, which has such a notorious, infamous reputation? Um, you know what? What is the narrative not not known? Well, a couple of things. I think if you look at our police department in the now versus the early nineties. Yeah, we've changed quite significantly. And, you know, yeah, we, we all, back in the 90s, we all went through training after the riots, the sensitivity training. But what really has, what really has changed is the faces of LAPD. If you look, we, you know, as, as you hire younger people, and younger people are a little more tolerant of, of people that may have, uh, you know, a little bit different than they are. Our workforce reflects the diversity of Los Angeles much more than it did back in the 90s. So I think that's one of them. And that's really a big piece that's responsible for a kind of why, why we're different. You know, we are made up of close to 10,000 officers and another 3,000 civilians that are just people like everybody else. We have families, we have kids, wives, husbands, significant others. You know, we come to work and we try to do our very best and we want to go home to our families but you know i think i think the big thing is is some of the stories that we talked about today that stuff is happening day in and day out 24 7 in the streets all over the city where you have officers that save lives or you have officers that are working with youth groups that are helping keeping them out of gangs or you have gang officers that are out there patrolling the streets and because you're out there patrolling the streets, nothing happens in the neighborhood, you know, and that is, that is a daily routine that really doesn't get a lot of fanfare because, you know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't, you know, it, it happens all the time. And, you know, I think every officer when they get in that black and white and they start driving, they start patrolling in whatever neighborhood you live in in the city, that officer is saying, Nothing's going to happen to you, not on my watch. Yeah, and it's it's a complex issue that I'm very happy to discuss as often as possible because, you know, with my brother's upbringing, when I remember he still has an issue swallowing to the, today because he was choked out pretty aggressively when we lived in the Bay Area. 
by an officer who almost choked him out. You know, he's afraid of police. He's been in and out of jail his whole life. And, you know, listen, he looks so scary. He's tattooed from head to toe. He does have a rap sheet and I understand kind of, but he has a good heart, you know, and he's, he wouldn't hurt. He mostly hurts himself from addiction. Right. And he joins a gang to be protected um, because of fear. And so there's, you know, there's two sides of this. So I understand the fear and I understand the lifestyle, but I also have a lot of officer friends. One that became an officer because his brother was gunned down by a gang member. So he's now a Mm -hmm. cop, you know? And so it's, it's, it's so difficult when you have these defund police, ridiculous notions. And what is it? The city of Portland now said, okay, we changed our mind. Give us 5 million to hire more cops. Well, look what you've already done. Look at the impact you've done with the whole defund police. You know, it's ridiculous. And, and it's so important to talk about these tough issues because there are some that fear there's are some that there are bad seeds, but then also I want to talk more about the hearts of officers like yours and so many people that are just such good human beings and thank God you exist. And I wish we had more conversations like that. I wish people knew officers. I wish they had friends with officers in whatever, you know, sector of law enforcement to see that these are big hearts and we need them protecting us. And that's what they're doing. And, and just deal with the bad seeds as they come, but don't punish yeah. an entire wave of, of a unity because of it, you know? Yeah, no, yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that's exactly, I think you painted a very good picture of law enforcement across this country in general. What would you like to see change moving forward, just with the community, people, life, yourself? You know, I think, I don't necessarily, like, and I'm just speaking for Los Angeles, I think that our job is to keep on this same path that we've been on for 28 years and just um, and enhance it and make it even better. And if you look at uh, some of the work that's going on with our the Community Safety Partnership Bureau, um, you know, working with uh, communities that are in, in gang areas and even working with, with the gang members, gang interventionists, that's a model we didn't have in the early 90s. You know, as I mentioned before, when we started, our motto back then is we're going to arrest everybody and get out of this, you know, eradicate this gang. Well, that, that's not going to happen. And there are people that have been in gangs that are interventionists that want to see the same thing that the community wants, that the police department wants, and that's a safe community. And I think it's really important that we, we, we keep that goal in mind, continually, continually improve the way that we as a police department, you know, train and continue to improve the way we work with our communities and expand it and push it to the next level. Chief Chow, what's next for you personally? Where would you like to go well, next in your, your illustrious career? <laughs> um, that's entirely up to the chief of police. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, I mean, I love what I do. And I've got 30 years on and I have no plans of leaving. I, I just, um, you know, I've grown to love the city of Los Angeles. It's very, a very interesting place to work. I've become very connected to the many communities that I've been able to serve. And I feel like it's, um, it's my second home. So um, I, I see my future as continuing to serve the LAPD and people of Los Angeles. 
in such an iconic police division, you know, the LAPD, how many movies have been made about all of you? I'm just curious, is there a favorite LAPD movie or show that has ever been made? Um, gosh. You know, when I told you when I was young, I watched Colors, but I realized that's not a very good either a comedian or LAPD. I, I don't know. I, I remember, um, gosh, I can't. I can't think of. I mean, you know, I thought I, I thought like uh, like Southland kind of captured some of the things that had happened on a day to day basis pretty well, you know. And I thought, tra- um, uh, what was it? Uh, End of Watch, I think, captured the feeling a little bit. I mean, if you watch End of Watch and you look at the interactions between the partners, that's exactly how it is. I mean, I think a lot of cops watch that show. Well, God, they captured what goes on in the black and white, and and how these and how you know what officers do in the field. I mean, of course, some of it was Hollywood eyes, but those two shows jump out to me. And yeah. I remember oh. when I when I was a really young kid, I remember watching Hill Street Blues, and I I think maybe that might have actually played an impact on me because. It wasn't like, a, you know, like One Adam 12 is a good show, but it's kind of sanitized. And, but Hill Street Blues really kind of showed like the, the human emotion that police officers have and, and people, suspects and victims and family members. And I remember thinking, well, that's really interesting. You know, and I, so, you know, it, it shows like that, I think, that bring kind of the reality in, into people's living rooms that I found really capture what kind of what the essence is of really being a police officer in Los Angeles. Not to put you on the spot, but which is the worst one you've seen where you just roll your eyes and go, there is no way this is even remotely true. Oh, probably police Academy movies. Oh yeah. (laughs) But those are the funniest. (laughs) Yeah. I remember when we met Kelly, he put me in a, a bomb squad outfit. It was like 50 pounds. And he was like, go walk. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I could not walk more than 10 feet. I have a photo of myself in the bomb squad outfit. It was the coolest day ever. And it's just so fascinating, you know, that unit to me. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's so heavy. I couldn't move. I it's just, I can't even imagine officers in it trying to defuse something. <laughs> but now you have robots. You have those um, really cool, uh, I don't know what they're called, bots that go in and disarm a bomb with a remote, right? Yeah, so sometimes they still have to suit up because sometimes the robot can't get to places or things like that. But, you know, I remember, you know, being a, being a police officer and watching uh, law enforcement movies is really hard because even in shows like SWAT and, uh, you know, some of the other ones, you know, we, 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 uh, we have people that are maybe hired by the production companies and they're supposed to give advice. And you can see things that happen in these movies, like, uh, especially like, you know, like speed and things like that, that well, that would never happen. And they say, well, yeah, but this is Hollywood and it needs to be interesting for the viewers. So it's really hard to watch a, a police movie when you're in law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, because again, it's like, is it changing the narrative with these people that don't really know how it is? You know, it's like uh, when the forensic department says it's not CSI, we don't get the results in an hour. I don't know how many press conferences I've been to where detectives are like, this isn't CSI. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't get, you know, we don't have shootings every day. We're, you know, in the streets of Los Angeles, you know, down 
all the way down downtown with semiotic weapons and things like that. So yeah, I think I definitely think maybe you know movies and shows that kind of like glorify the stuff. Because I understand that's what viewers want to see. It probably changes the narrative a little bit. Well, Deputy Chief Blake Chow, LAPD, you're always such a pleasure, so insightful. I just love knowing you. Thanks for chatting with us. Uh, anything else we should mention before saying goodbye? No, I think we covered everything. It's just a very, a very pleasure to uh, talk to you again, Melissa and Kelly, and just, you know, thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Follow Killer Jeans on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at Killer Jeans, the podcast. Also, be sure to like and subscribe to Killer Jeans on Podcast One, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Caitlin Van Maal, host of I Survived. If you enjoy I Survived, we are excited to announce a new launch. Starting November 15th, we'll be reposting our classic episodes from season one of I Survived. We hope to reach a whole new audience with these important stories of survival. And for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we think these powerful episodes warrant another listen. Starting November 15th, look out for those episodes and more news from I Survived.